Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, it's Colleen here, co-founder and chief brand officer of MindBodyGreen. I want to share that Jason, Ellie, and I have fallen in love with listening out loud. We have Sono set up throughout our Brooklyn apartment, and it has really changed our life at home. We have three Sonos Play One speakers set up in our great room where we unwind with good tunes after a long day. I also love listening to podcasts on our Sonos while I cook. There's another Sonos speaker in our baby Ellie's room who falls asleep so easily to the sound of white noise. There's also a Sonos play base in our bedroom so we can listen to guided meditations in the morning or at bedtime. Having a great sound system has changed our lives. As a husband and wife team, it helps bring us out of work mode and tune into family time. I'm thrilled to share that Sonos is offering the listeners of the Mind Body Green podcast 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code MINDBODY10, capital M-I-N-D-B-O-D-Y-1-0 at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. If you spend a fair amount of time on Instagram, chances are you've seen one of Cleo Wade's poems float into your feed. Wade is a poet, artist, and storyteller who successfully used Instagram as a platform to share messages of encouragement and activism. Her messages connect the dots between self-love and activism in a way that makes both ideas accessible to every one of her 358,000 and counting followers. After a few years of consistently writing for her Instagram audience, her work started gaining traction with brands, eventually leading to a TED Talk and her first book, On Sale Now, appropriately titled Heart Talk, Poetic Wisdom for a Better Life. Avid followers have said her advice helped them get over heartbreak, through depression, unblock creativity, and more. And her book aims to be a spiritual boost for those seeking guidance. Come have a seat and join Cleo and I as we chat about how she got into poetry, her childhood in Louisiana, the practices she uses to protect and nurture her energy, all the way to what it means to be a responsible citizen today how to use social media without getting burnt out, and how she copes with anxiety. Without further ado, here she is. We are so excited to have Cleo Wade, inspirational artist and storyteller here in the MBG studio, and you have an amazing new book, Heart Talk. Let's rewind a little bit. How did this all happen? When did you start falling in love with poetry? Well, I went to poetry summer camp as a kid, and It was also the only class in the creative arts summer camp I went to that meditated in each, at the beginning or at the end. Was it the beginning? It was, I think it was at the end of each uh, class. And so I always went, I did the poetry one every single year. And even though it wasn't kind of the cool thing to do, and all of my friends were like, why do you go to the poetry class? And I was like, oh, I get a nap at the end. And I'm just, I'm tired. And I was trying to play it cool. (laughs) But really, I just fell in love with it. And I remember, I remember the first class I had because she said I just want you to write something that doesn't make any sense she said I want you to think of every bird in every color you've ever seen a bird in and write about the one bird in a color you've never seen it in Mm -hmm. and so I think that one of my first poems was uh, as a kid was about this kind of rainbow parrot and these colors that I'd never seen a, a bird in 
I remember thinking even from that moment, and even though years went by where I always wrote and made things, and I, I think you can probably relate as a creative or a maker, you you always make things and they, they just have these different manifestations. And I think that poetry ends up being some of our friendships, our relationships. Poetry ends up being the way we might get dressed in the morning or a painting we might make in our lives. And so even though from, you know, when I went to that camp at like six or something, until now I have all these different manifestations of what it means to create or make things. But I think that from that moment, there was this defining idea I had, which was that there was a profession out there where you could use your imagination for a living. And as I grew older and wrote less poetry or was maybe writing poems, but didn't know I was writing poems. Sometimes I think we lose the intention along the way as far as what that means. And, um, I, I don't know, it just stuck with me. And then as I got older, I was like, I kind of want to use my imagination for a living. How do I do that? And I started writing again a few years ago. So pretty recently. Yeah, you know, I was first painting for, and and I still paint uh, quite often, and I have a studio, I had a studio in Greenpoint, and I was painting the words, and I was making these collages and these really cool kind of collectible art books, and I had a mentor at the time, who's still my mentor in many ways, and he said to me, this was maybe five years ago, or even sooner than that, maybe four, yeah, four or five years ago, he said to me, you know, the words are the best part. Hmm. He said, work on the words for two years and your life will change. And I remember buying uh, or getting a, a friend of mine got me a little pink typewriter and I traveled with it for two years. I brought it to Morocco. I brought it to Paris. I brought it to Turkey. I brought it with me everywhere. I brought it to Mexico, Big Sur, and I just focused on the words, and then I remember maybe about three years ago, I put them online for the first time. And in the meantime, I'd done some things with the words. I'd made some public art installations, but that was really the best advice I ever got uh, as an adult was to just focus on the words. And your words have a pretty distinctive style, um, especially on Instagram. You know, you, you sign all of them, and then some letters are filled in. T- talk to me a little bit about your style and how it developed and evolved. So with filling in the letters, that was actually how I would proofread. So I, I wish I could say that I thought it was just cool and looked, <laughs> looked great, but it's actually how I would go back and make sure that the sentences were making sense. And then a lot of the other things, the things you might see that aren't signed, are probably from my typewriter because I still have that pink typewriter and I write all of my love poems on it. Still. Yeah. So in the book, some of the more, the the book is basically split between traditional love poems. And when I say love, I mean love of so many things, uh, handwritten notes, and I call it kitchen table conversation. So basically what you and I are having right now. Um, or, or better yet, maybe what we'd be having if we were sitting at my mom's house in Louisiana having a glass of wine. I love that. Tell me a little bit more about growing up in Louisiana. I grew up in New Orleans, and I always say that the city of New Orleans was kind of my third parent as far as the influence it had on me. I feel really fortunate to have had really free and highly individualized parents. My father is an artist and, uh, my mother is a chef, and they both always worked for themselves. And I think that because they live in this New Orleans culture, everything is so celebratory. I mean, right. my mom is in a disco dance troupe, and you know, there's dancing in the streets, and there's costumes. And I think that New Orleans is the perfect place to raise an extrovert. So I I do think that seeing such a melting pot of cultures and and more than that it's it's that the cultures are just expressed so freely there right and you know i mean you go to jazz fest and there's congo square and there's the native american indians who are dancing in these incredible traditional garb and and everyone's eating on the streets and drinking on the streets and dancing together and it is such a rich cultural space and it's so free 
and what's influenced my work is always kind of keeping this space for you to feel free even in the words. And I think that a lot of that has to do with my upbringing because I try not to be too bossy or tell you that there's one way to do it or that here's here's the magical solution. I always try to make sure that there's this part of you that can be free and even in the messaging to do with it what you want or, or get from it what you need. So how do you stay free today and keep that creative energy alive and continue doing what you're doing? You know, I attribute a lot of my feelings of being free to my tribe of girlfriends in my life. I think that I have so many friends, um, like my friend Mia, who really taught me what it meant to truly live in the moment. I mean, she is someone when she walks into a room, the moment has begun. She doesn't think about the past. She doesn't think about the future. You can't possibly gossip with her about something because she's like, who are you talking about? If they're not right here or in this space... She is so in the moment, and I think that it's so important, especially when you're in really intense places in your work or with deadlines or with your family or with whatever, is that a lot of the energies around you um, help to keep you light and bright. And I feel fortunate that I have a tribe of girlfriends where at any point if I said to them, like, should we just go here for the weekend and do this? There's definitely someone saying yes. Yeah. And I think that also, you know, I definitely have rituals or traditions in my life that I take to get the weight off. Um, I was telling you earlier, I, I do these like energy dumping trips. I love it. Tell us more. Where I um, I'll go somewhere, whether it's I do it. In, I've done it in Tulum a few times or Big Sur, and I I guess in a way call it as time to be creative. But I don't have a goal of actually making anything. I just have a goal of releasing and connecting and letting go or dumping the energy I don't want and allowing the new energy or message or spiritual conduct or or feeling to dump dump in yep I, I love this concept of energy and how conscious you are about it in your life oh yeah I'm imagining it, it extends to your friends the people you do business with um, and that these are all conscious decisions. Yeah, well, you know, before I um, write anything and before I started writing, I, I made a promise to my audience. And the promise to the people I write for is that no matter where they are or how alone they feel, this is this is for them to make them feel less alone in whatever that moment is. And so I think that when you do make a promise to your audience and or to your tribe then the intention is always there and you can see really clearly when anything is not aligning with the intention so whether that's your friend someone in your friend group who isn't on board with the intention of how you're moving through the world or whether it's a collaborative partner where you're like you just don't you, you might just not get it Right. And and you feel like you know what it is because it is the promise you've made to the people who you make your work for. Right. If there's that pit in your stomach of exactly. something not feeling right. Exactly. We've all felt it in exactly. our creative pursuits. And and I, I always tell people, I'm like, make that promise to someone. You know, make that promise in your life of what it means to know you. Right. You know, it, say to someone, if you know me, I promise what you'll get from me is this. And if you know what that promise is, then everything in your life is easier. It's so much easier to make decisions. It's so much easier to make a judgment call on something because that is the thing. That is, And if you're with someone and they're like, you don't get it, and everyone's always wondering what the it is, know what your it is, right? right. You know, and, and that it is the promise you make to we, your community. We talked a little bit about how your home is also this place of productivity and creative yeah. t- creativity for you. What are the rituals that you do for your house to keep it sacred and that special space for you? So I sage my house every single day. I sage it every time someone comes in or it comes in and out. And I always also set an intention before I work. So when usually what I'll do when I sage my apartment in the evening is I'll 
kind of repeat to myself over and over again as I sage, calling my energy back to me, calling my energy back to me, because I know that I've gone through this whole day of when we just take on so much energy or we, we put out so much energy or maybe you're around energy vampires who are just trying to glob on to all of your energy. And so I bring the energy back and then I'll also sage my workspace and say, um, and, and it, I guess it really depends on the day. Um, you know, if I'm having trouble writing, I'll say, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's kind of like I say for like mental and spiritual fertility. I love Do that. you know what I mean? Fertile mind, fertile yeah, brain, exactly. fertile body. Yeah. And so because you're, pr- you're producing, you know, when I made my book, it was making a baby. You are birthing you know? a baby. Right. And it's so funny because I say like now releasing the book is like raising your child. <laughs> and so I'll do kind of a mental, spiritual, body, everything um, kind of fertility chant over my workspace. I love that. Um, what about other rituals in your life and how you think about self-care or not in them? Self-care is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. You and it's, me both. Yeah. It, it, it's it's there's a, I mean, the actual, the first page of my book says first things first self-care and it's, you know, I think culturally a, because self-care has started to become something that's sold to us. It's gotten a little confusing. I think it's, it's becoming something that I think we go to do, not something we practice not only in our relationship with ourselves, but within our dynamics with other people and also in our, in the space we take up in the world and our dynamic with the world. I think that there's so many people right now who feel so exhausted and so fatigued by whether it's just the way we're receiving information in this day and age. Uh, you know, statistically we're not a more violent or corrupt time and place than we have been historically. I think that we have access to seeing and hearing. And I think our news outlets have become conflict television. I think every single one of them from whichever side of it you're on, they're all the Jerry Springer show at this point, you know, they've got these pundits on and you're actually like, where's the news part? I see where all these opinions about the news are, but, but I don't really understand where the like, I actually just wanted to know what happened that day. I don't really care what 10 different people think about it. And I'm definitely not here to watch any of them argue about it because, like, that's not helpful to me. So how do you think about your media diet then? Yeah, I, I have a pretty I have a pretty strict and also ever-evolving media diet. I think there's some days where I'll pick maybe two news outlets that I'll look at in the morning. I have some people I just really trust as far as the stories that they're reporting. So whether that's Nick Kristoff. And then I have also certain, even just like certain curations of the news. Like one of my favorite places to um, get information is my, uh, one of my best friends, Doreen McKesson's Twitter, because he is just so perfectly curates the the actual news that's happening and it's and it's not opinion heavy uh and i also listen to his podcast a lot pod save the people uh because they do a news roundup every episode of and it's five thought leaders um news stories of the week and and sometimes i'll do the new york times their their podcast in the morning that goes through their headlines but it honestly, it changes. Like, I don't think that there's, I think that we get into a really sticky situation where we think that there's one way to be a responsible citizen right now. I think that we think that if we're not traumatizing and re-traumatizing ourselves every single day, then we don't care. And I think I, I just don't, I'm not buying that. I think that you can have joy and still care. I think that you can take care of yourself and I don't think that that's a sign of not caring about other people. And I think also it's okay. We can forgive ourselves for not living in fear. You know, if you have the day where you didn't walk around just totally afraid, I I don't think that means that you're not taking the current state of the world seriously. So how do you stay positive with the current state of the world? You know... It's it's so funny because I get that question a lot and, and I never write from a place of like, okay, 
we need positive messaging right now, so I'm going to write something positive. Instead, what I try to do is affirm where I feel that people are based on myself feeling that way too and okaying that space. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I think a lot of the times that just ends up feeling positive to people. So I remember even, I, I recently wrote a poem for the New York Times and when I was first writing it, it was the poem that they were releasing on the anniversary of the Women's March and Inauguration Day. And it was about how are we, what kind of gets me up in the morning to continuously participate in the world we're living in. And I started, and I, and I was thinking about it, and I started the poem by saying, I don't want to get up. Sometimes I don't want to get out of bed. And I affirmed, actually, the realistic feelings that we're having. And I don't say, you know, I don't ignore the stuff that sucks. Right. That's, I think, why the work is re- more relatable to people, because I think that if every time something and and you can look at that with spiritual all spiritual texts i think whether that's the bible i mean people they don't always just say trust in god they'll say remember that story when those two crazy things happened and so and so still made it over the mountainside and into the da 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 and yeah. and they held the faith of the mustard seed or whatever you know they they affirm actually that the journey was never promised to be an easy journey right and i think that for me, when I write, I, I try to always remember there is no there. There is and no journey? There is no destination on the journey? Yeah, there is no there. Every time you get there, there's just a new set of circumstances. I mean, think you just had a baby a year ago. There was probably this journey of getting there to the place, and you felt like, okay, now I'm going to be a mom. I'm in the mom. I'm there. And then you're Check. like, now how do I become the good mom? <laughs> or how do I become the mom that's that's doing the right mom stuff? And and then and then your uh, your child will get older, and you're like, how do I become the teenage mom? And then it's it's there's no there in that in new that journey mom every space. day. Yeah, and the tools we pick up, they're not supposed to make us feel like we arrived they're supposed to help us along right you know because there's no space of arrival i remember i mean i remember when the we were first picking out when the book would release and there was this big push to have it released in january because they were like january new me new year new you there's there's so much and i was like no i don't want anyone to think that this is a trick you're not going to get this book and then decide that you know who you are and your the weight you've always wanted to be and you're climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and you're having your your best self for 31 days. Exactly. I was like, this is not a recipe because you're not a cake. Do you know what I mean? And so when I wrote it, I was like, listen, this in, in my intro, I said, and if you don't want to treat this book like a book, I'd really like that. Treat it like a friend, treat it like a companion, keep it in your bag, keep it on your coffee table, open it when you need a moment where someone's telling you, I've been there too. This really helped me. This really helped my friends. This poem might just completely affirm where you are and not even do anything but that. Like I've been that sad before too. I've been that heartbroken before too. I've felt that loss before too. So you, you've talked a lot about what is resonating with your work. A lot of these shared experiences and being honest in where you are on that particular day and not sugarcoating it. Yeah. What do you think is going on right now with the levels of anxiety that we have? We know that, you know, especially when it comes to young girls and women, that there's a huge surge in anxiety and that we have a lot of tools at our disposal to help make this journey easier, but people aren't happier they're not more fulfilled and and a lot of people are hurting why do you think that is oh i think culturally we're going through a huge shift and you know there's this line in my book where i said you know it's called um growing pains not growing pleasures i like that (laughs) and i think that part of the anxiety we might feel is that things are changing life is changing Perhaps it, I wasn't supposed to feel awesome throughout all of these changes. Right. And I don't think that that means that we sit there and say, so I, I'm just going to feel bad. I'm going to deserve to feel bad. And then I guess one day I won't feel bad. Is that what you're saying? And no. I just mean that we have to reframe 
what it looks like for us to have our own joy. And joy is not, joy is like the sky, right? And happiness or sadness or weather patterns. Right. So we have to know what it takes to accomplish joy so that on those days where we're feeling anxious or we're feeling depressed or unmotivated, we have that underlying spirit within us that says, this is moving through me. So, I mean, I'll give you an example in my yeah. own life. I had a, um, like two weeks ago, I just had so much going on. I had family stuff happening. I've had work stuff happening. I've had, you know, restructuring your life to be on the road for months. It's, it was, it, there's so much. It's exhausting. Yeah. And it's, it's also just, it's, you know, I, I think it's such an important conversation for us all to have is that like people tell you to go after your dreams, but there's no talks on how to hold your dreams when you have that, when they come to you and you come to them. Mm -hmm. And so holding your dreams coming true is actually really overwhelming and it's really exhausting and it's a new life that, you know, you still feel like you and you're in your body and you're in your same apartment, but all of these things in your life are shifting. They're the things you've always wanted and you don't know how to hold them. And so you're juggling them kind of a little bit and you're moving them around and you're like, and then you have your own personal growth where you're like, well, you know, this dynamic in this friendship or relationship worked for me in this way, but it doesn't work for me now. And, and, and really finding self care within our relationship dynamics is something that is so critical. I love expanding the conversation of self care to how we treat our own self and our relationships. Yeah, well, you know, we think that it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the spa, so that's my self-care. Draw the but, bath and I'm good. Right, but really it's like self-care is, okay, I and with my partner or my parent, if an entire day went by and there were five unsaid things, like were you practicing self-care in that relationship? Like were you taking care of yourself? And what does it look to take care of yourself as a daughter, as a mother, as a partner, as a friend? If you have the relationship with a friend where there were five toxic things that really hurt you that were said to you in a week, are you taking care of yourself by not addressing those things? When you go to sleep and there's all these situations in your life, whether it's at work with your boss or your colleague, and it's taking up so much real estate in your brain, are you practicing self-care in those dynamics? Are you taking care of yourself at work? And I think that that is so critical. And I think that when we don't actually, I think a lot of our anxieties right now have to do with all these spaces where we're not taking care of ourselves. And so we're trying to buy the self-care tricks and think mm -hmm. that that will help our anxiety. So we'll say, okay, so I did the retreat for like two days and I did the yoga that I don't even know if I like yoga. I mean, maybe yoga is even for you. Maybe you're the person who wants to spin or go on a walk outside or whatever. And then you still have the anxiety because you tried to buy the self-care time rather than practicing the self-care principle. Right. And you're not tuning into yourself to figure out, did this really work for me or not? Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of anxiety has to do with how we're speaking to ourselves. So I was having really um, intense anxiety about a week and a half ago. And I woke up in kind of the middle of the night. I couldn't get back to sleep. And then I started thinking about all these things and my you know, heart rates up and all, and these and things. And then you can't get back to sleep. So you can't sleep right. more. <laughs> and then, and, and, and I remembered thinking to myself, you know, at least, I know I have tools to get through this mentally. And, and so I first, uh, I chose a mantra and I just kept saying it because the thing about all your kind of wild and crazy thoughts, and even if they're not that wild and crazy, it's like anything you're thinking at 3am is wild and crazy. For sure. And I had a mantra and I just kept saying to myself, this is not you, it's, it's moving through you. And I just kept saying, you are not anxiety. This is not you. This is something moving through you. And just as easily as it came, you can let it go. And, and these things leave out of the same door they walk in. Mm -hmm. And I just kept envisioning it leaving my body too, because a lot of what happens when we have anxiety is that we're like, oh, we have anxiety. I have anxiety. Oh my God. And, da, da, da. and now I'm having an anxiety attack. And we and actually, now I'm anxious about my anxiety. And yeah. We, 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 we don't even give ourselves the pep talk when we need it most. Right. And that's a, that's another 
big theme of my book is what does it mean to be your own best friend? You know, we know how to give someone else a pep talk. We know how to, like I say that, you know, a best friend um, doesn't just do the big gesture. Every now and again, they think of you in small, thoughtful ways all the time. That's a really good friend does that. How do we do that for ourselves? How are we just always thoughtful of how to take care of ourselves or make ourselves feel good about ourselves rather than running ourselves into the ground and then, you know, thinking that if you do a girl's trip for three days that all of a sudden you're better, right? So I think that a lot of the anxiety in our culture has to do with not having a practice to release it from your body because it's an unwelcomed, you know, those thoughts are not at home in you. That's not who you are. It's not who any of us are. But I think when something occurs so frequently, we start to identify with it. And we have to learn that it's just not you. There's not a place for that curriculum, whether it's how to be a good friend to yourself, how to be a good friend to your girlfriends, your partner, your family. Like there, There's not a good blueprint for us. Yeah. We kind of have to figure it out in life yeah. as we go on this journey. Well, I also think that... And the most interesting place to start is to find a template you kind of like and then bust it open. And I say that about whether it's your career, whether it's your self-care journey, whether it's your spiritual journey, just start trying the things you think are interesting and don't be afraid to dismantle it and rebuild it in your own way. And I I think that especially in, in, in being a healthier citizen and participating in the world more, um, I always feel so thankful for people like Angela Davis or Alice Walker or Gloria Steinem. And it wasn't that I feel like I am like them now, but their templates allowed me a space to begin. And of course, now I do the work I do in the world in a very different way than they do. But because they told their stories, which is why I also think it's so important for us to share our hacks, share our anxieties, tell our stories, because that does give a template to the next generation. And I think that leaving them with templates for self-care and self-love and anti-anxiety and and a braver life, I think that, you know, all we can hope is that they walk into our template and then smash it open and build it even bigger and, and more vastly and, and, and more incredibly. Right. It's hard not to talk about anxiety without talking about technology and social media and perhaps its influence on anxiety. What is what is your relationship like with technology? You know, I this is going to sound like the least deep thing ever to say. <laughs> I try not to think about it too much because it's kind of when we were talking about it earlier. And you're yeah. like, I'm str- I struggle with I struggle with technology, and I was like, well, the easiest way to stop struggling with it is to stop struggling with totally. it. Totally. And I'll have friends who will say, oh, I got off of Instagram. I'm on an Instagram cleanse for 10 days, and I'm feeling so great. And I had another friend of mine who was in the same in the same conversation saying, oh, I was just in Cuba, and I didn't have – there was no Wi-Fi or reception for three days, and I just felt amazing. And I was – I mean, A, I was impressed and, and good on them, right? But at the same time, I was like – well, don't we have the power to do that at any point in time? And do you have and, to go to Cuba to do that? Right, and and also, do we forget how in charge we are of doing good things for ourselves? Do you know what I mean? As far as whether it's like, oh, if it feels so good to do that, you should do that feel All good the thing time. whenever you feel you need to. Yeah, and I think that that also the interesting thing about this day and age that makes it so different than um you know television for the previous generations because listen like there were kids that were just glued you know we we want to shame everybody about their kids being on ipads like kids in the 50s and beyond were glued to the tv i mean for sure i I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he was like i don't understand why everyone's like the screen thing the screen thing he's like i just sat in front of the tv all the time in the 70s i was like i totally get that and, um, but you couldn't push buttons and have sounds come out of well, it. <laughs> and you couldn't, um, there was no fear of missing out. There was right. no fear of feeling left out. And I think a lot of what creates anxiety around any type of media is this fear we're attaching to it. So if you could release the fear of what you think you're finding in there every time you open it, right. then you won't have too many feelings about opening it. Right. And I, I just don't know if a ton of our feelings belong in spaces where we're grasping. And I don't think that that's, whether that's in our real life 
relationships or our online relationships, I think that social media can be used as an incredible tool. And just like any great tool, right, like a hammer, it can build your house or it can vandalize your neighbor's window. It can be equally used as a weapon. Right. And so I think that we have to really ask ourselves, what are we going into this space for? What is our intention? Is our intention to look at the people or lifestyles or things that make us feel like we're lesser than or not doing enough? Or is it something that's aiding our shame? And one thing I write about a lot is that very few of our intentions leave us in a neutral space. Mm. So you really do either build or destroy where you come from or where you are. So even if you're walking down the street and you're only looking at your phone the entire time, that may not be an aggressive thing to do, right? It may not be, you know, spray painting your neighbor's staircase, but is it actively building your community to not acknowledge anyone's humanity around you? Right. And so I think it's the same thing with the online space. Ask yourself, like, am I building my self-confidence and my self-love when I go into this space or am I destroying it? And I think that when you're, because none of it is neutral, even just the scanning with a glazed eye is not neutral. Right. Am I dulling my senses? Am I dulling my functionality, my emotions? When we really, really consider, am I building or am I being a bulldozer right now? the decisions we make around our media affect us less and they're easier to make. And, you know, we don't have to feel like in order to have sanity, we have to be completely switched off. Right. It's not binary. Right. There's a middle ground and it's a little more intentional. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, I actually beg to differ that it is kind of binary. I think it's actually when you go into that space, you're either doing good for yourself or you're doing bad for yourself. Right. And when you start to inch over to the part that feels bad, get out of there. Right. And and, and it can be good or bad for you. Right. And and I think it's distinctly one or two of the one or the other. I really don't think that any of our actions leave us in a totally neutral space. I I just don't believe that. I think that when you have a flippant comment towards a friend, you're not actively building the trust and building the relationship. You're actively piecing it apart. I don't think that it just because it's something that's easily forgivable doesn't mean that it's not taking away from. And I think that that's the same with media. I think that when you go on, like if your intention is like, this is a place I go for tools, it's a place I go to learn, it's a place I go to connect with people and share ideas and see parts of the world I'd maybe otherwise not get to see or tune into a conference I wouldn't otherwise get to yeah. hear this information on. I think that that makes your online world really exciting and fun and an interesting place to be. If I go and it's heavy and it's junky or it's I'm watching, you know, humanity not at its finest, or I'm coveting someone's looks or lifestyle or whatever, I think you are actively picking yourself apart. Right. And, and, and that logic is a, it can be easily applied to, you know, meditation or just being happy. So when you're just like, I'm going to let my brain wander, that's actually that, that wandering little by little actually leads into a more depressed state. Rather than saying, okay, I'm just going to focus my intention here and I'm doing this right now. And even if doing this right now is noticing the sun or noticing myself walk or or intentionally looking at that street sign or taking a different route to work where I notice different things and say hello to this person or, you know, that that actually stimulates our brain in a more positive way. So you're talking a lot about intention and mindfulness. How do you weave that or not into your everyday? Is it something that's just embedded in everything you do? Or is it, here's the time I set aside for my mindfulness practice? Or is it a combination of both? I find it to be the most realistic to just have the intention that you fi- you'll find it in your day throughout the day. Yeah. So there's certain things you can be I'll mindful do. about unloading the dishwasher. Yeah. And you can also... I mean, I think it's great. I mean, I went to yoga at 8 a.m. So I think there's different degrees of your intentionality, you know. So I think that on that spectrum, like when you block out two hours to just be in your body and not be on any devices or not be in constant communication with other people and drop into a meditation, I think that that's like a 100 on the scale of intention. But I think that if you just allow yourself to say, okay, I'm actually going to walk here instead of take a taxi because 
the vitamin D will be good for me and the fresh air will be good for me and actually moving my body in this way will be good for me and I'll take that time to like call my mom and put that energy there. And I think that that's a really mindful way of living and I find that to be really soothing and also practical. Right. You know, I think a lot of it is, you know, there's so much of like when we even hear the words like mindfulness or self-care it's like you think that there has to be like a seven-day juice cleanse totally and or even just having two hours to go to a yoga class yeah i i'm not doing that as much as i would like to (laughs) and in the same way if you if you go to a yoga class for two hours but your brain is racing and you're not really there then yeah that's not really a, a mindful use of your two hours either right i mean i think i i haven't been able to get to yoga and at least a couple of weeks. And so even if you give yourself the space to miss it, you're 10 times more present in when you're there as well too. Where do you do yoga typically? So I've been kind of bouncing around because I've been traveling. Yoga omnivore. Yeah. So I do go to the East Yoga East, which is on Avenue B because it's really close to my house. Okay. And then I tried this new place today that I was really into and I can't remember the name of it, but it's on Bowery. Okay. It's called like QC. Or something like that. I don't know what it's called. I'll look it up. Okay. But it was really, it was, it was the weirdest yoga class I've ever done, but it was awesome. It wasn't Kundalini or anything like that. Yeah. Which I also did for a really long time and I really like, but, um, there was like a chair involved. It was like a whole, I've just, I've never, but it was the most, I want yoga having a comeback. Right. I want to say that it was like kind of like the, like gyrotonic of oh, yeah. yoga almost, but it wasn't, it wasn't. That's really soothing. Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't like that. It's just like, you know how that is all about just like exactly how you're placed and doing it in just, just the Small right angle. done it was, precisely. It was, yeah, it was kind of like that. And what about yoga at home? Can you do it or not so much? Yeah. I, you know, I, I read once a few years ago, someone said, um, just, I keep the mat out and I devote at least 10 minutes to it a day. And that's what their yoga practice. And, and, and there was, it was a yogi. So it meant yeah. that sometimes they get to do it for two hours or three hours or whatever. And I try to adopt that as much as I can. Just, just knowing your feet touch the mat for, even if it's just for 10 minutes, I think is such a, I, I, my body just feels better. So what lessons would you have for your younger self? If you were talking to the Clio of, of a decade ago? Well, you know, it's so crazy because in, in writing heart talk, I realized that it's the book that I would have really wanted five years ago I desperately needed 10 years ago and it would have completely changed my life 15 years ago. Wow. And so I honestly feel like I just literally wrote a book on that, <laughs> on, on all of that advice of just, you know, whether it was some pages that just say, remember not to care about the things you don't even care about. Mm-hmm. And other pages that say, baby, you are the strongest flower that ever grew. Remember that when the weather changes. I love that. And one. and it was also so interesting because when I was going through something um, like just that the kind of stress I was telling you about last a couple weeks ago, I had to do the audio recording for my book. Like the next day, I was like, okay, cool. I'm having like anxiety attacks. I'm like crying on the streets. I'm like clearly emotionally unstable, and now I should just go read this book. And <laughs> um, but it helped me so much. And I was like, I just, I remember having this moment where I called my, my mom after and I was like, I'm just so happy to know it at least really helps me. <laughs> In my case study of one, yeah. I'm one for one. Yeah. Like, cause I was just, I was reading through it and I was like, I actually feel a lot better. <laughs> and that's something people need a lot of right now. Well, and I think it's it's important, you know, it's we're also living in this like content day and age where people are just doing or writing because they think it's going to work or sound cool or jumping on a bandwagon because like exercise is so hot right now or like being having this hashtag or thing or 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 you know they're they're marketing before they're they're creating. Right. And or they're 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 creating based on how they want to market rather than marketing before the science. Yeah. And I was just, I remember thinking like, I'm just so happy that the work actually works. If that makes sense, that the words, they work and they, they really are just so helpful, you know, and, and, and just practical and easy. And it's such a, 
light and loving experience to spend time with the words. And it's, it really was so healing for me that day. Yeah. So our audience right now really is looking for tools that are accessible to help them lead complete and fulfilling lives. And it's something we talk a lot about here because so much of the connotations with wellness or self-care, you know, part of wellness is that it's expensive. It takes too much time. I don't have the money for it. It's inaccessible. I have a life and kids and a job or whatever it may be. How can people tune into themselves to help them feel good? What are so, what are some ways you would help people? The best advice I could ever give someone is to find the mantras that help you. So whenever I'm about to speak publicly, I have a mantra that I say over and over again to myself that is when I'm so nervous is Do you still get nervous? Oh my gosh. And and few, I know you were just at Makers. Yeah, I was just at Makers and few people know this about me, but I mean, actually, maybe no one knows this except now your audience. I mean, right before I went out to give my TED Talk, the very last thing I did before I got off, like, got on the stage was take, like, Kleenex out of my armpits because I was sweating and so nervous and so freaked out. I've seen your TED Talk, and you don't look nervous or freaked out. And that was the last thing I did was, like, was literally yeah. take tissue out of my armpits. <laughs> and, um, and every time I speak, I'm always um, – I always have – butterflies and I have such a um, nervousness because you know it's also you know when you speak also your own words there's such a deep vulnerability there and especially whenever I um, you know I almost always write specifically for wherever I go so I'm not the person who has a ton of rehearsed things that they just kind of go on stage and do a thing right even when I before I do an interview I'm always like don't even tell me the questions before because I'd rather just see what happens when we sit down because I don't ever want to be a talking head that represents myself either, you know? <laughs> yep. Um, because I think there's enough things to talk about that we can just chat, chat, you know? So whenever I'm about to get on a stage, I always say to myself, as long as you are yourself, you can't fuck it up. And I That's say a good it, mantra. And I say it over and over and over again whenever I'm really nervous about something. And, I, and then sometimes I'll tweak them. So for Ted, because Ted was the first time I'd ever, as an adult, memorized something that was that long was there a prompter no they don't let you use a teleprompter wow and so, so there's no support mechanism there's no support mechanism and it's terrifying and and i think especially because memorizing anything is something we just don't practice anymore like we don't even know the names of artists we loved at a museum because you're in your head you just think to yourself i'll just google it i'll, I'll look it up later yeah Whitney museum 2016 march and it'll pop up right. so so i mean whose phone number do you know I know my parents. I know my husband and my mom and dad. Right. Full stop. Right. And so um, I was so nervous about, like, could I memorize something? And then could I do it in a way where I could tell it as a story and not feel like I'm reading a prompter in my brain? Right. And um, and so before, I remember two days before I got off of the script of reading the, the poem I wrote, because I was like, I just don't want to seem like I memorized something and I'm reciting it. I want to tell the story. And then I forgave myself, and as I kept rehearsing, and I forgave myself if I skipped something or missed something or whatever. So the mantra I used up until the second I got on the stage with the armpits was, um, "This is your story, and you're here to tell it." Ooh. And I and I tell people a lot of the times, you know, whether I speak at different women's conferences, and they'll ask me, you know, how do I tell my own story as a healing mechanism? And I tell them, I say that a great mantra for that is. This is my story, and by telling it, it could save someone's life. And so I think that that really prompts people to have the bravery to speak out on what's happened to them, what goes on with them, tell the story where they might feel, you know, whether it's the body shame, the mommy shame, the the white privilege shame, the every everything under the we sun. We all have those stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, and it's like get your story out of your body. And I think that that's one of the most critical things you could do, whether it's journaling, whether it's texting yourself, just move it out of your body because when you can get it out of your body and see it on paper, you can also start to edit it a little bit. And I don't by edit, I don't mean you can't erase anything, but I mean you can see what it is and you can decide, okay, I'm not going to be that anymore. I mean, I've had radical shifts in my life only because I decided. I mean, I remember 
maybe five or six years ago, having this aha moment. And I just had lunch with one of my girlfriends, and I think I was reading at the time The War of Art, not yeah. The Art of War, but The War of Art. Yeah. And as I was reading it, and I think maybe it was like one of the first quote-unquote self-help books I'd ever read, and I was sitting with her after lunch. I was sitting in her hotel room. She was visiting me from London, and I was like, I could just be doing better. And I was like, I could just, and I was like, and I don't know how to be a better person right now, but I think I know how to be a better sister, and I think I know how to be a better daughter, and I think I know how to be a better friend, and actually, I'm pretty sure I know how to be better to women, because I know that I've just actually spent a life not doing the best I could. And I remember having that shift, and it wasn't, like, I didn't have this sky-crumbling moment, and I didn't have this crazy thing that happened in my life or my family or anything that prompted that I had a thought that created a shift in my my desires and I just acted on it and I think that it can actually be that simple and that's a lot of the science behind how I wrote my book was like there's just no big waves I want you to get caught up in because I do think that some of our biggest shifts come from a micro adjustment we make so when we just make a decision like you know what not being nice to that person that I sit in that office with because I'm intimidated by her and I having roles that could be comparative or or in competition with each other, that's not the best I could do for her. And that's not the best way I know I could treat another woman. How I'd been with my friendships as far as feeling maybe competitive with them with men or in social situations or whatever, I could do better. And then I think that that journey of deciding to just change because you can at any moment. And I think that that's what makes life actually so exciting. And so I, I think that I guess to your listener or your reader, or your audience, I would say start to change the things you want to change. They're always, it, that's always available to you and really, really watch the way you speak to yourself. You know, we can build ourselves up with our words or we can destroy ourselves and also I mean listen how you speak to yourself ends up being how you speak to everybody else it ends up being your entire energy for how you're perceived in the world it ends up being how you speak to the world and that is what creates your destiny but you know our destiny doesn't just happen to us like we are chasing our destiny but our destiny is chasing us right back kind of thing I love the power of those words, and I think it's a perfect place to stop in that we have so much power through these micro moments to change our destiny, and we don't have to wait until we hit a high or hit a low to to evolve and to be the best version of ourselves. A change just doesn't have to be that big of a deal. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks.